Would you open your Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter 24? Matthew 24, and as you're turning there, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time and his matchless word. Father, we indeed are grateful that you have told us all things beforehand, that God, the day that is fast approaching would not overtake we, your people, like a thief in the night. Lord, you told us that which to look for. You gave us information abundantly that we might know the season in which we are now living. One God, where there's a generation distinct from all others before it, that in the moment in the twinkling of an eye will be taken from this earth forever to be with you. So Lord, would you teach us the meaning of the signs and the seasons that we are now encountering and watching unfold all around us. And Lord, would you inspire your word in the speaking and teaching of it and give us ears to hear and heed it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me first say this tonight. I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is this. The sermon is pretty short. The bad news is this. The intro is huge. (laughs) Now, the backstory of any particular text is of critical importance. And as my good friend Don Stewart will often say, I know many of you hear him on a pastor's perspective and on World News Briefing, context, context, context. It is critical that we establish the context of any text. And therefore, if we're going to uh, accurately do an expository teaching or study on any set of verses, we have to know what's before and what follows in order to do so. It is also of critical importance to identify both the either author or speaker and the audience that he is addressing. Now, this is critical once again, as we have in front of us a rather interesting dialogue that takes place with a rather limited group. As a matter of fact, the number of attendees, so to speak, is four. And the speaker is one, and he is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, we won't have them identified in our text, yet Luke tells us that the audience that Jesus is addressing here are the two sets of brothers among the 12 disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John. Now, these factors are important because our text is eschatological in nature. It's a study of last day's things. And there are a couple of details concerning what's in front of us, I think, that are great of great importance. The first being that this is the longest dialogue, so to speak, concerning the last days outside of the book of Revelation. It is the longest continuing conversation, so to speak, that is outside of that great book, the Apocalypsis of John, that we all study so carefully and see developing on the world scene. Now, the other thing for us to take note of is also of great significance and that this is the longest answer to any question in the Bible. Any question that's asked, this is the longest answer that has been received. And because the subject is such of, criti- of such a critical importance that Jesus took the time to spell out specific details to the listening for. Now, one thing we need to understand and establish is that context will keep us from errant interpretation. And studying eschatology is much like the old Jewish saying, wherever you find two rabbis, you'll find three opinions. And that's the same as with the study of eschatology. As many as there are of commentaries, there are of opinions. So therefore, we need to be careful what we look at and what we glean from any particular text. Now, our title tonight, if you're a note taker, is simply The Time of the Signs. What in the world is going on? Well, we are living in the time of the signs. Things predicted by Jesus, things talked about by Ezekiel, things covered in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and certainly John the Divine in the Revelation. Now, I believe that the time that Jesus is describing is directly preceded and uh, preceding, rather, the tribulation period. And I do believe, to a degree, incorporates the church. And I think by the time we're done, you will agree this evening. At least I hope you will. So let me set the scene. It's two days before the Passover. We're told this specifically in Matthew 26, 2. 
We are therefore deep into the Passion Week. At this point in time, Jesus, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, has ridden into the city of Jerusalem the very first time in his three and a half year public ministry that he welcomed public praise from the masses and he was greeted with the messianic anthem or proclamation, if you will, in Hebrew of Baruch HaRashem Adonai, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord with the following shout of Hosanna, meaning save now. Now Jesus, after the triumphal entry, as we describe it, goes into the temple and turns the tables on the money changers and quotes to them two Old Testament passages to validate that which he is doing. In Matthew 21, 13 tells us that Jesus says to them, those who exchanged money and sold doves on the temple grounds, Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, a direct quote from Isaiah 56, 7. And he says, but you have made it a den of thieves, thus partially quoting Jeremiah 7, 11. Now, after Jesus drives the money changers from the temple grounds and the bazaars of Annas that are at the foot of the uh, western gate or the western side uh, steps, I should say, Jesus then heals the blind and the lame who are on the temple mount. And bizarrely enough, much to the chagrin of his favorite group of people, the Sadducees and Pharisees, who he was always at odds with and labeled them with a rather dubious title that we'll talk about here in a few moments. Now, there was also a messianic proclamation made as Jesus was healing on the Temple Mount, and that was Hosanna, again, save now, and then they assigned to him the messianic title of Son of David. Now, the Jews well knew that the Messiah would be declared a Son of David. Now, after healing many, Jesus that night went to Bethany for the evening, and then he returned home, or to return rather, to Jerusalem the next day, where he had an encounter with a fruitless fig tree. Now, I want you to log that information. Put that in your database right now. Go ahead. Got it? There's a fig tree in our text, and it did not bear any fruit. And that's crucial to understanding the whole of the Olivet Discourse. It might seem an insignificant aside, but it isn't at all. It is germane to understanding the whole of the text. Now, the disciples marveled at the curse that he spoke to this fig tree, and then he taught them a message on mountain-moving faith. And we've all heard of his great proclamation there. If you have faith as a mustard seed, or if you believe and do not doubt, you can say to this mountain, move out of the way, and it will move. Him using a bit of hyperbole, obviously, to make and establish the importance of faith and trust. Now, on his arrival back to the temple, the chief priests and the elders are trying to trap Jesus and set him up with a question and even ask him what authority is it that he or who gave him the authority to do the things that he had done, including the driving of the money changers off of the temple grounds and all those who sold their wares there. And Jesus, in essence, said, my dad, that's who, that's who gave me the authority. Now, also, he answered their question with a question concerning the baptism of John. He said, let me ask you something. John the Baptist, was he of God or was he of men? And they reasoned within themselves thinking, well, if we say he is of God, then he's going to say, why didn't you listen to him? And if we say he's of man, the people will get upset because they considered John the Baptist a prophet. Now, Jesus then teaches to the crowds a series of, of parables. And the Pharisees try and trap him with a question about paying taxes, whether or not he ought to. And then comes the famed saying, render to Caesars that which is Caesars and to God that which is God's. And Jesus shut them down with his answers. He then encounters a group of Sadducees who do not happen to believe in a bodily resurrection. And they again try and set a trap for him and bait him using a hypothetical situation of a woman who married one brother and he died or one man and he died. And then according to Jewish tradition, the brother next to him was to marry the woman. And they laid out a scenario where a woman wound up at her death having seven husbands. And they posed the question, whose wife? will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said immediately to them in front of the masses, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. 
In Matthew 22, Jesus says to them in verses 30 to 33, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Concerning the res- but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Our God is the God of the living today. Amen. Now, the scribes heard about this, and they too tried to take a shot at Jesus by questioning him about the law, and they also were shut down by Jesus, where he turned the tables on them with a question about the Messiah. In Matthew twenty-two forty-one to 46, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Then he said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And again, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. A lot of things happening during the Passion Week in the span of just five days. Now, Jesus here has established himself as the Messiah, the God-man, God in human flesh, being both a descendant of David, but also born of the Holy Spirit and of a virgin. Now, many of the Jews at the time believed that the Messiah was just going to simply supernaturally appear and would not come through the channels through which Jesus entered into the world. And Jesus establishes their error and clears it up and shuts them down. Now, interesting that as things continue to go in the Passion Week, from bad to worse, so to speak, in chapter 23, Jesus offers a blistering rebuke to the scribes and the Pharisees and pronounces a series of eight woes upon them, introduced by the following phrase, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and then he lays on them his favorite title, hypocrites. Now, he concludes his rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees with the following indictment. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven to 39 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is interesting that Jesus would close his indictment with such a statement because this is the very proclamation that the scribes and Pharisees rebuked the onlookers for proclaiming when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And Jesus, in essence, is grouping them with what the Bible tells us the whole world is going to wind up in. And that's a category of people who bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess that he is the Lord. Now, some will bow unwillingly, but out of necessity, I choose to bow to Jesus and say, he is the Lord even now. How about you? He is our Lord and Savior. We choose to bow and submit to him even now. Now, it's interesting what happens next. We're told in the opening words of the Olivet Discourse in verses 1 and 2, then after all the things we just mentioned, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, again, I want you to understand the magnitude of what has happened thus far. In the space of four days, The disciples had seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem and be hailed as the Messiah and King. And as I mentioned, for the first time, receive such praise. He further authenticates the proclamation by healing the blind and the lame as he had been doing since his ministry began. They hear teaching that silences his accusers. And they have just been told that their religious authorities that they had long revered are basically hell-bound hypocrites. 
And then Jesus adds that this building that so many are amazed by and revere is going to be torn down and not one stone left upon another. Now, you may think that that sounds like the introduction or the end of it, but wait, there's more. Now, we need to add a couple of things concerning this audience. The four who came to Jesus to ask about the future were obviously all Jews. They came to him with an understanding of certain things that framed the questions that they offered to Jesus. Now, they knew that when Messiah came, he was going to make things right. All Jews believed this. They knew that he was going to overthrow Israel's oppressors. They knew that he was going to establish again a kingdom with Israel. And the things would be, that things would be the way that God had promised them to be through the prophets that they also carefully studied. They knew historically of the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom, the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom. They knew historically of what happened with the Persians and the Greeks and now that which was taking place under Roman oppression. They knew that the Old Testament talked about a future day that was bright and hopeful and nothing like that which they were currently enduring. They knew and expected an anointed one, a king, a messiah, or in the Greek, a Christos, or Christ, would come and establish the rule on the earth and reign from David's throne, which is the throne of human government. Now, they all longed for that to come when a time of righteousness and peace would indeed prevail, a time when Jerusalem would dwell in prosperity and safety, and not just for a brief time period, as end times or days past, but it would happen and be and last forever. Even as the prophet Isaiah had told them, they longed to see that day where the restoration of the kingdom was as God had promised it. Now, it was this knowledge and from this basis of understanding that their questions were framed and prompted. And we see in our text that it was ever pressing in the minds of the Jews and the audience that Jesus was now teaching to. Even after the resurrection, they had the same concern on their hearts and minds as evidenced by Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, when Jesus was assembled together with them, the eleven, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they said, oh, that's so exciting. We can't wait to be baptized in the whole. No, they didn't say that if you know the book of Acts. What they actually said was what has always been on their mind, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And we know the Lord said, hey, don't worry about that. There's business for you to do until I come. Now, all of that to say this. The topic of the Olivet Discourse is the second coming of Christ and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel and the signs that indicate that that time is near. Now, the reason that this is of utmost importance is because this eliminates all possibilities of the Olivet Discourse being fulfilled in 70 AD, like many like to interpret or present. Now, the other thing to note is there are many non-biblical writings that the Jews studied carefully, and though they are not inspired by God, they do give us a glimpse into the mindset of the Jews of that day and what they believed uh, concerning eschatology or the things of the last days. The Book of Enoch the Psalms of Solomon, the Assumption of Moses, the book of Jubilees, the Ascension of Isaiah, the fourth book of Ezra, the Apocalypse of Baruch, and the book of Secrets of Enoch and the Sibylline Oracles all give a bit of a glimpse into how the Jews interpreted eschatology via Old Testament scripture. Now from this we know that the Jews believed there was coming a time of tribulation. The Jews believed there would come one who would be a herald announcing the coming of the Messiah. That's why so many got excited about John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah. The Jews believed when the Messiah came, the nations of the earth would gather against them in hatred and fight against their Messiah who would devastate and destroy them. Sounds pretty consistent with the book of Revelation. And then he would purify the city of Jerusalem, gather together Jews from all over the earth, and establish his eternal kingdom. 
Now, this clarifies for us the opening question of the four. The first thing they're going to ask is, tell us when these things will be. Now, there are many who like to point to the fact that this was discussing only the destruction of the temple and the events surrounding it, as I mentioned, in 70 AD. However, this is a a threefold question, or there are actually three questions that the disciples ask. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another, speaking of the temple, not the retaining wall around the temple, but the temple itself. The disciples did not ask, when is that going to happen? But rather, they asked three questions, and we will examine those questions this evening. What are these things? When are these things going to be? What will be the signs of them and of your return? So, as we dig into the Olivet Discourse, or at least the preface, consider this. What we have in front of us is the king of the Jews answering for Jews about the future of the Jews. And therefore, much of what we see today that is growing rampant in the church, replacement theology, and the anti-Semitism that is growing around the world is not just non-biblical, it is anti-biblical. It is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches we ought to be looking for. The national Israel we see as a country today is the Israel of the Bible. And there are those who want to disparage that and basically uh, through the divestment programs and all the other things we see happening in the world today do all that they can to hinder the furtherance of the nation. Well, I have news for them and it's not good news. God said that he has his name and his eyes set upon Jerusalem, not just the geography, but also the people, the descendants of Abraham, and he will watch over them forever. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah said in chapter 32, if you see the sun doesn't come up one morning or if it leaves its ordinance and the moon's not out at night, then you can know that I have forsaken the nation of Israel. Did the sun come up this morning? Is the moon going to be out tonight? Well, then we know that God has not forsaken the nation of Israel. Amen? So let's take a look at the Olivet Discourse, at least the preface, and we'll come to an understanding of some rather interesting things, and that is the end of the introduction. Matthew 24, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Question number one. And what will be the sign of your coming? Question number two. And of the end of the age? Question three. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, you students of scripture out there, I'm sure know that that phrase, beginning of sorrows, can be translated from the Greek as labor pains or birth pangs. Now, one of the points that's often made concerning the teaching of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is that there is no mention of the rapture. And they are absolutely right. There is no mention of the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. However, let me pose this question to you once again. We establish that the king of the Jews is talking to four Jews about the future of the Jews. Are the Jews going to be raptured? No. Unbelieving Israel will not be raptured. They will enter into the tribulation. So it's no big thing that there's no mention of the rapture in the Olivet Discourse because it's about the Jews. Now, the use of personal pronouns throughout the discourse has also led some to think that the content is limited to those who were listening there, and they were a representative of the greater group, the other disciples, who would all see the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, here's the first problem with that. All of the disciples, except for John the Beloved, were dead in 70 AD, so none of them saw the destruction of the temple save John. Now, that's a big problem, I would say, wouldn't you? Apparently not, but I would say that, so I'm going to. That's a big problem. Now, Jesus has asked three questions. When will these things be? 
What will be the sign of your coming? And what are the signs of the end of the age? Now, interestingly, Jesus answers the last question first, but I want to address the first question first because it's the question everybody wants to know. When? When are these things going to happen? And then we'll dig into the time of the signs. Now, remember, I told you to log in your memory a what? A fig tree. Now, the fig tree is used as an idiom for the nation of Israel in Hosea 9.10 and in uh, Joel 1.7. Now, there is near unanimous agreement, one of the few places, where most scholars and commentators agree that the fig tree Jesus cursed when he came to a tree that did not bear fruit because it was out of season. Most commentators agree that that is representative of the nation of Israel. Jesus came first to his own and his own received him not. They are the fruitless fig tree. Now, check this out. In Mark, you guys still here? In Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, we're told now the next day, this is the day after the triumphal entry. We're given an established chronology here. The next day, When they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again, and the disciples heard it. Here is the cursing of the fig tree. Now, Mark chapter 11 tells us in verses 20 to 21, in the morning, this is the next day, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots and Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed has withered away. So twice in the Passion Week, the day after the triumphal entry and the day after that day, there is an encounter with a cursed fig tree that was withered from the roots. The next day, say the next day. The next day, Jesus said, now learn this parable from, who knows? The fig tree. Now what fig tree is he talking about? Now listen, we need to be careful because there is figurative language and symbolism all over scripture that's always identified. And just because a fig tree means Israel in one spot doesn't mean it means Israel in the whole of the Bible. There are fig trees mentioned in scripture that is talking about a fig tree. But when on day two, it was a fig tree idiomatic of Israel. And on day three, there was a fig tree idiomatic of Israel. On day four, the fig tree is going to be idiomatic of Israel because you have the same teacher teaching the same group to a degree. Now, this is important. Now, I do want to say this before somebody asks me a question afterwards. Luke, in his record of the Olivet Discourse, says, consider the fig tree and all the trees. Now, that's not a problem whatsoever, and it doesn't infringe upon the content. Rather, it expands it and stays within the context. Because the truth is, if the fig tree is idiomatic of the nation of Israel, then what are all the other trees idiomatic of? The Gentile nations, all the rest of the nations in the world. Now, are all the nations of the world going to go through the tribulation? Sure they are. All those who do not believe. They're all going to go through the 70th week of Daniel. Now, this gives us an answer to the question, when will these things be? When Israel buds as a nation... After a long period of dormancy, after the diaspora, the scattering among the nations, then non-Jewish nations and the Jews alive at the time who see the rebirth of national Israel are the same generation that are going to see the whole of the things taught and mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. Now, because this is dealing with Israel, some say there's no reference whatsoever to the church in the Olivet Discourse, including in the birth pangs. But I want you to consider something here. For the first time in the course of human history, the church is present on the, pl- on the planet at the same time as national Israel. It's never happened before. National Israel is now in existence and the church is still alive and present, though about to be, I believe, snatched away by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I'll wait for you to say amen to that. Amen. Yes. Now, therefore, 
we can answer the question, I believe, definitively. Will the church see any of the birth pangs prior to the tribulation or that which is leading up to the tribulation? I believe the answer is yes. And I believe we can make a foundation for that. As a matter of fact, I believe there's a typology of that in the Old Testament with the 10 plagues experienced by Egypt. And Egypt is a type of what? Of the world. Egypt is a type of representative of the whole of the world, non-Jewish peoples. Now, in the 10 plagues that the Egyptians encountered for their oppression of the nation of Israel, between plague number three and plague number four, God made an interesting statement through Moses to Pharaoh, where he said, I'm going to make a difference between my people and your people. And I believe that pictures the rapture of the church, because there were 10 plagues in Egypt. The Jews encountered three of them. 10 minus three, get your pocket calculators out, is... Seven, interesting parallel with the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of Revelation. Uh, So the parallel, I do believe, is there and quite clear. Now, in Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 to 24, the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. I like this. Or else. Man, how'd you like to hear that from God? Let my people go or else. Well, Pharaoh heard it via Moses. And he says, let my people go or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there. In order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be, and the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies, but there were none on God's chosen people. They were separated from the wrath of God on the world. Now, It's interesting, the Lord says, that he's going to make a difference between his people and the Egyptians who are a type of the world. The the word deliverance can also be translated as redemption. It can be translated as ransomed. And I want you to consider this evening, according to Scripture, 2 Peter specifically, we are also God's chosen people. We are a holy nation as the church today. And we too are going to experience the birth pangs much as the Jewish people or the Israelites experienced the first three of the plagues of Egypt. Now, time will not allow us to develop here here this evening. I want to get you out of here on time. But the first three plagues on Egypt that Israel shared with them are representative of materialism and idolatry, immorality, and apostasy. Let me ask you, Are we as a church in an era that could be described as materialistic and idolatrous? Is it immoral? Is apostasy growing in the world today? I think we could say yes, yes, and yes, and therefore hit the trifecta. Now, remember, the 70th week of Daniel is yet unfulfilled. And the purpose of it is twofold. One is to redeem Israel, and secondly, it's to punish Israel's oppressors. We see this rather graphically presented in the last three chapters of Zechariah, where 10 times in chapters 12 through 14 were mentioned the phrase, in that day, a day known as the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of Jacob's trouble, the day we know as the great tribulation. And Zechariah 14, 12 says, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. I highly recommend missing the whole tribulation thing and just being taken in the rapture. Amen? Amen. So what are the signs? What are the signs that we would be looking for to know that our redemption is nigh? The first sign Jesus mentions is false Christ. Now, one thing to note is that 
not necessarily the signs themselves per se, but the way that they're going to happen is the first thing for us to take note of. Again, Jesus likening them to birth pangs, and we men know a lot about that. (laughs) Birth pangs, obviously, are leading up to something, a great event, a birth, and in this case, it is leading up to the birth of the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, and therefore the things that are mentioned are going to, as paralleled by birth pangs, increase in frequency and intensity, leading right up to these last days scenarios that we have before us where God is going to deal with the Jews and those who oppressed and afflicted them in the last days. Now, Interesting, if we consider this and follow this progression, we know that there will be an increase in uh, a frequency of the number of people claiming to be Christ, so to speak. Now, there is an interesting element to this. If we note that the word Christ means anointed, and what we're going to see in the last days is an increase in the number of people who claim an anointing, saying, I have received this from God. This is a message from God, and not strictly this, this is not strictly uh, restricted to those who say, I am Jesus. For the most part, those people are classified as whack jobs pretty quickly, right? When somebody says, I'm the Jesus of the Bible, they're usually written off. However, if somebody shows up and says, I have an anointing from Jesus, now that's a different deal, and we see that happening all around us. Let me ask you, are there false anointings around us all over the place today? Are they on the rise? Are they becoming more frequent? Are more people following after them? And the answers are yes, yes, and yes. And therefore, in this birth pang succession, what we should see is false Christs and false anointings that are leading up to the ultimate false Christ, the beast of Revelation chapter 13. He will be the last of the false Christ. Now, we would also, in this birth pang fashion, expect to see wars and rumors of wars on the increase of both their frequency and intensity, which are ultimately going to lead up to the final war, the great war. And I always find it curious that the battle that has been talked about more than any other over the last 2,000 years hasn't even been fought yet. And it is a battle of Armageddon or Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo. Now, therefore, we would expect to see an increase leading up to that which takes place as recorded in Revelation 19, where Jesus comes back with a great cloud of witnesses, and he comes in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and he's riding on a white horse, and he has on himself a new name written on his thigh and on his breastplate. And this is the crest of God, I believe, as Jesus rides into battle to destroy the enemies of his kingdom and the Jews. We would expect to see if this birth pang succession is in order, the increase in famine until the time where the ultimate famine that the world is ever going to experience takes place when all the living creatures in the sea die and all the fresh water of the world is turned into blood in accordance with the second and third bold judgments of Revelation chapter 16. This is cheerful stuff tonight. Is it true? Hello? Is it true? Then we need to know it. Amen? Now, pestilence is increasing until a final foul and loathsome sore strikes every person who took the mark of the beast under the first bold judgment of Revelation 16 would also follow that same progression. Now, these are all natural course of life events. Now, many people like to make that argument. There's always been wars. There's always been rumors of wars. There's always been earthquakes. There's always been famine. Have you heard these arguments? Now, we're given a rather interesting component to argue back that question, and I'll give it to you in a moment. But we do know that these things are on the rise today. As a matter of fact, wars and rumors of wars abound. And the World Post, in today's paper, ran the following story. There are signs Israel may be at war again this summer. This time not with Hamas in Gaza, but with Hezbollah in Lebanon. 
Such a war may be the result of not only a spillover from the Syrian war or ongoing Israeli Hezbollah tensions. The deciding factor may be an Israeli calculation that war will shift the momentum in the U.S. Congress decisively against the pending nuclear deal with Iran, a deal that critics say will increase Iran's maneuverability in the region, including its support for Hezbollah. I have to disagree with this administration. A bad deal is not better than no deal. No deal is better than any deal. There should not be a deal with the Iranians. Amen? Now, this I find to be interesting. The Daily Telegraph reported today that a U.S.-China war is inevitable unless Washington drops demands over South China Sea islands that they're building out there. I don't know if any of you have been following that story. Kind of curious. And there's a warning from state-run, from the state-run China newspaper in Beijing that reveals plans for development of disputed South China Sea islands. And the U.S. has made a flyby uh, with a reconnaissance plane, receiving now threats from the Chinese. And they got a big army. And they're growing, no question about it, and their military might. Now, it's interesting that we see a phrase repeated in the Olivet Discourse concerning nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, this is not a repeated phrase for the sake of effect. They are two distinct happenings that are part of the birth pang scenario. Nation is the Greek word ethnos, and it is the word from which we derive our word ethnicity. Now, let me ask you, are ethnic tensions arising around the world today? Even in our own country, we see this now taking place. Now, the, the word for kingdom is a completely different word, basilia, where we get our word basilica, interestingly enough. And it does mean royalty rulers. It can even mean dominions, which introduces a spiritual element to it. Do we see kingdoms and world rulers warring today and making threats And I have to say, I am thankful that there is at least some stable leadership in the world in North Korea. (laughs) Kim Jong-un, the bastion of wisdom over there, I'm sure you all can appreciate him. Now, it's interesting that the next sign, limos, famine, means a scarcity of food, quite simply uh, defined. Is the majority of the world experiencing a scarcity of food? It's been said rather interestingly that if the whole population of the world lived the lifestyle that Americans live, if all seven plus billion people lived like you and I do, ate like you and I do, that it would take five planets to sustain the Earth's population. Now, the world is in a different situation than we are. And they do experience a scarcity of food. And it does continue. And it is increasing. Now, it's interesting that the next sign, pestilence, is not incorporated in some manuscripts. And the word for famine and the word for pestilence are just one Greek letter apart. Uh, This is the word uh, limos. And the word for pestilence, uh, uh, loimos, is the word, I'm sorry, for pestilence. Limos is the word for famine. That simply means plague or disease. Is the world racked with rampant disease today? If we just look at the statistics for sexually transmitted diseases or STD, we know that the world is definitely in plague status. And we are seeing these things rise around the globe, AIDS, tuberculosis, other things that are striking people dead, to say nothing of malaria and other viruses that are now mutating in a way that antibiotics cannot treat uh, bacterial infections and things of that nature. So we see this on the rise as well. Now, it's interesting, the next word. We're told that the next sign that is going to take place is the Greek word seismos. Now, obviously, seismograph is birthed out of that Greek term, but interesting that the word directly translated means commotion. It can also mean a tempest. It can mean a gale. It can also mean an earthquake. Now, this would be consistent with Luke's record of the Olivet Discourse because he expands on it just a bit. In Luke 21, 25 to 28, 
We're told there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth great distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with, great, uh, with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because, who knows, your what? Redemption draws near. Remember the word difference back in Exodus? Redemption, difference. Indeed, there is a time, a moment of time that is fast approaching, I do believe. Now, the events here in Luke are tribulation events, and seismos would be an appropriate blanket covering of those things. But there's another commotion that's of interest that is happening in our world today, and that would fall under that same category of seismos, and that is volcanoes. And we see them erupting around the world today, and we'll talk a little bit about that in our second hour. That was a joke. We're, we're wrapping up already, kind of. Now, we paused for a moment and emphasized what Luke was saying. He said, when these things begin to happen, look up for your redemption is nigh. Now, the word begin that Luke used there means to commence in order or to begin the sequence. We might understand it. Now, Luke says, when this sequence begins, look up for your redemption is nigh. Then the very next thing that Luke records is the parable of the fig tree, stating that all of these things will come to pass in the length of time of the generation that sees them commence. Now, there's been a lot of uh, interpretive gymnastics concerning how long a generation is. Do you know how long a generation is? Pardon me? 125? 80? Some say 40? I don't know. Neither does anybody else. Does it, mean, <laughs> does it mean that every person, even an infant born on May 14, 1948, not all of them are going to die? Is it talking about the adult generation? Nobody knows. Hence, Jesus could make the statement, no man knows the day or the hour. And we do not. But we are told what to look for When these things commence, look up for your redemption is nigh. Now, what that tells us is this. The parable of the fig tree points to the fact that the beginning or the commencement of these events is the rebirth of Israel. As foretold by Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and implied by many other Old Testament prophets. Now, what that gives us, now this is important, what that gives us is a starting point to begin our measurements. A lot of people say, well, you know, they haven't been monitoring earthquakes for all that long and the whole world hasn't been populated and it's been impossible to govern or monitor things all around the globe Uh, uh, 500 years ago. Things would happen that nobody else would know about. But we're told that's not the unit of measure. The unit of measure begins with a zero on May 14th, 1948. And that's when you start your calculations. That's when you start your measurements. That's when the birth pangs begin. And these things are to be measured by how much they increase. Now, since May 14th, 1948, have false religions been on the rise around the world? Absolutely, no question about it. Since May 14th, 1948, has the church largely, in many quarters, become apostate? Yes, not this one. Gosh, you guys are freaking me out there for a minute. I said not this one. I thought you'd jump up and shout or something. But this is also prophetic in nature. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4, Paul said, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Then Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the apostasia, the falling away, comes first. And then the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is 
God. Boy, that's the ultimate narcissist, isn't it? Showing himself that he is God. Now, since the day, May 14, 1948, have ethnic tensions increased around the world? Are kingdoms fighting against kingdoms? Is there an increase in anti-Semitism? I'd say that's the ultimate ethnic tension, wouldn't you? And anti-Semitism is on the rise and it's escalating by leaps and bounds in these last days. Has there been an escalation in the number of wars fought around the world and the rumors of them since May 14, 1948? Has the scarcity of food and the rise of disease occurred? AIDS and other things that are now killing people by the millions. Now, we would also want to add to this mix the monitoring of the commotions that are part of the birth pangs described by Jesus during the time of the signs, remembering storms, volcanoes, earthquakes. Now, anybody else follow websites that some people might question your sanity for following that monitor and track disasters around the world? I look at that all the time. I look at that almost every day. And the last time I looked at a website that uh, I follow that tracks uh, mass deaths of animals and incoming uh, uh, asteroids and things of that nature into our uh, solar system and earthquakes around the world, biological hazards and all these other things. As of 1 o'clock today, now I don't know what the number is now, it's far higher, but as of 1 o'clock today, there were 150 earthquakes on the planet. Just today, 150 earthquakes on the planet. Now, listen to this. They have been tracking earthquakes for 100 years. And in the last 100 years, earthquakes have been measured and monitored. And the number of great quakes over the last 100 years up until recently in the last 25 years, the number of quakes over the magnitude considered great earthquakes has increased dramatically. And a great earthquake is a quake greater than 7.0. In the last 100 years, they've averaged one great earthquake per decade. Now we just had three in a month. Are earthquakes increasing since May 14th, 1948? Yes. Are they becoming more violent? Are they increasing in intensity? Absolutely. They've been rising in, in recent years, and not just quakes uh, of a great magnitude, but smaller quakes as well. Now, the U.S. Geological Survey put out this report not too long ago, tracking back in our window of 48 to the present time, In 1973, there were a total of 4,539 earthquakes. In 74, there were 4,528, actually a little bit of a drop there. Then in 2000, there were 19,131. In 2010, there were 23,040. In 2011, there were 22,392, another drop. But listen to this. From 2011, it went from 22,392 to 2013. There were 89,622 earthquakes on the planet. Then in 2014, it went from 89,622 to 118,404. Now, we're not even at the midpoint. We're almost there of 2015. Now, I don't mean of the message. Some of you are like (laughs) freaking out already. Did he say midpoint? Marge, did he say midpoint? I thought he said no. In 2015, thus far, there's been 36,000 earthquakes this year already. Now, it's interesting also because of the seismos and the blanket or the umbrella that that covers and all the things related to both air, land, and sea that that involves. The relationship between volcanic activity and uh, earthquakes is clear and well documented. Now, here's something else that's kind of interesting in our day to tell us this birth pang succession is indeed underway. They've been monitoring volcanoes around the world since 1835. And they've obviously, it's kind of hard to hide a volcanic eruption. And you don't have to be around the corner to know what happened, right? You can see it from hundreds of miles away. See the end result of the eruption, the plume, so to speak, the pyroclastic cloud that shoots up into the air and down its slopes. Now, interesting, since 1835, the number of volcanic eruptions around the world per year was 34. Per year, for 100 years, there were 34 volcanic eruptions a year. There are 41 volcanoes erupting as we sit here tonight, right now. Simultaneous eruptions of 41 volcanoes. 34 of them are on the notorious ring of fire. 
Now, here's another interesting little tidbit. This is awesome, isn't it? Okay, I like it, and you're here, and I have a mic, so you're going to get it. Now, listen. There are also super volcanoes. You know what a super volcano is? It's an underground mountain, basically, and you don't see a cone like you would see on the uh, typical uh, volcano that we make for a school project with our kids and tell the teacher they made it. It's not that type of volcano, but it's an underground volcano, far larger than anything that breaches the surface, so to speak. Now, there are some 18 known supervolcanoes right now at the present that have become active in the last 25 to 30 years, and they are all presenting the geophysical and geochemical changes that precede any and all volcanic eruptions. Now, this includes what's known as the Long Valley Caldera, which happens to be in the Mammoth Mountain area, and it is the biggest volcano on the planet, so to speak, as far as a caldera would be the equivalent of the, the, the top of a vol- uh, cone-shaped volcano. And it's simply the mouth from which whatever comes from underneath is going to spew. The Long Valley Caldera at Mammoth Mountain is 20 miles wide. That's a big hole that's going to spew something, uh, volcanic rock and ash and things of that nature. There's also a very active supervolcano under Yellowstone National Park, and I'm sure many of you have heard that. And I have to say, you know, one of my favorite statements, you guys know that not everything on the Internet is true. <laughs> you know that, right? I love a poster that floats around. Uh, you've probably seen it. Any of you on social media have probably seen it out there that says, you can't believe everything you read on the Internet, signed Abraham Lincoln. Now, there was a video that came out a couple of years ago, I thought it was kind of funny, with a bunch of bison running down the street in Yellowstone, and the reports were that there's massive stampedes of animals, uh, bison and, and other animals that are fleeing the coming eruption of the supervolcano under Yellowstone. And, uh, well, the truth is the bison run down the street every year, uh, so that really wasn't a sign. So we don't want to be sensationalist, amen? But neither do we want to be ignorant of prophecy and the things that are developing in the world. Now, here's an interesting factoid. Now, that's different than running bison. This is a fact. Yellowstone has been emitting helium-4 gas in recent months and up to about the last 12 months. Now, helium-4 is a naturally occurring release from the ground, and it's in and around other areas uh, where there's volcanic activity in places like Yellowstone, the geysers, and things of that nature. However, the levels of helium-4 that are being released recently from the Yellowstone supervolcano are at records or levels, rather, that have never been recorded previously. Now, why is this important? Well, helium-4 gas is contained deep in the rock layers below the earth. And therefore, when massive amounts of helium-4 are released outside the normal quantities that you would find in and around such an area, that tells you that deep in the earth there is movement in the rock layers and helium-4 is being released likely because of either tectonic shifts or lava that is moving underneath. Now, obviously, with the rise of the ground in Mammoth and other areas around the world, and there's uh, New Mexico and Arizona have supervolcanoes and um, all those other wonderful things. Let me remind you of just one thing. Before all this happens, we're out of here. Amen. I like to put it like this. The great escape is before the great tribulation. And the Lord is coming for us. But let me remind you of what Paul said in Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. So we see that the whole of creation fell with Adam in the garden and thus all mankind and creation itself and is groaning and travailing, awaiting its deliverance as well. Now here's the most important element of everything we discussed tonight. Regardless of one's interpretation of the Olivet Discourse or any other eschatological approach to any particular book, be it the book of Revelation or the interesting chapters in Ezekiel 38 and 39 or those in the latter of that same book or Isaiah. The fact and the most important fact is this. In John 14, 1 to 3, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many what? Mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will, who knows, 
come again and receive you to myself that where I am, what? You may be also. Now, all of this that we talked about here tonight is pointing to one crucial point, and it's this. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. We are living in the time of the signs that precede the rapture of the church and the ensuing tribulation that follows. A time that Jesus himself described as no flesh having the ability to survive unless he comes back and brings an end to it all. The signs are all around us. The Lord is coming. The Bible is complete in all of its capacities, including its capacity to predict the future, if you will. And therefore, Jesus, in the heart of the Olivet Discourse, gave this exhortation in Matthew twenty four forty four. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man, again, a messianic title, is coming at an hour you do not expect, or at a time of low expectancy. Did not Peter say there would be scoffers in the last days, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Are they scoffing today? So is he not going to come because they're scoffers? No, he's coming anyway. Amen. Scoffers are not. He's coming anyway. The signs are all around us. The apostasia is in full swing. There is an apostasy within the church that has never been experienced in the history of the church. There are departures from the faith and from the truth going on all around us. The earth is quaking. Volcanoes are erupting. There's signs in the heavens. Interesting developments in the book of Revelation in chapter 16. We see the sun is given an increased power to scorch men's bodies. And scientists have a great concern right now about a dormancy in the sun when it's in its peak cycle, when it ought to be extremely active right now. It's not doing anything. And that's very troubling to them because there's a great possibility of a massive uh, uh, coronal ejection is what it's called. And we call them solar flares, but that's not really what they are. And it bombards the earth with negatively charged ions, and it's going to fry everything electronic should this come to happen. It will burn up our magnetic field. Our magnetic field has been decreasing far faster. A recent report just came out that the magnetic field of the earth is decreasing 10 times faster than scientists thought it was in the past 50 years. And they've been monitoring the magnetic field again around the world for over 100 years. Now, listen, everything is happening. It's all happening, and it can only lead us to one conclusion and one question. Jesus is coming. Are you ready to meet him? There is an adage that floated around for a long time, and it's a bit old school, but I kind of like to hang with Jeremiah and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and then you'll find rest for your souls, Jeremiah 6.16 said. The big question is this, are you ready to meet your maker? That's how preachers used to preach it. Are you ready to meet your maker? Because you're going to. We're all going to, amen? The signs are all around us. Listen, it's not a time to be messing around or dancing with the world or playing with things that the Lord has told us to stay away from because they're bad not only for our spiritual health but for our witness as well. The time of the signs is here. It's happening all over the place. It's undeniable. It's irrefutable. And that's not hyperbole. That's fact. These things are happening. And it's time to look up because our redemption is... Nigh, it's even at the door. And the big question again is, are you ready? Would you bow your heads with me, please? And Father, we are grateful for that which we've encountered. And Lord, thank you so much for uh, that which you had told to these four inquisitors, God, those wondering what in the world is going on. When is this going to happen and all these things? And you've told us, Lord, in advance, such wonderful and beautiful things. And friends, listen, I don't want to let anyone get out of here tonight without an assurance that they have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and their eternal destiny is secured by the cross and resurrection and your eternal future is in heaven. If you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, Jesus also followed up those statements that he is preparing a place for us and coming back for us by stating when he was asked a question about how do we get there, where are you going? Show us the Father. And he made this response in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Listen, it's very popular today to say that all roads lead to God. And to a degree, that's true. But the big question is, where do you go after you meet him? 
If you want to spend eternity in heaven, it's only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is only through the blood of his uh, God's son shed on the cross that has the power to redeem and cover your sin and mine. And God has therefore provided a way. And there's only one way. Religion can't save you. Morality can't save you. Good works can't save you. Being a nice person can't save you. Going to church can't save you. Paying your tithe can't save you. Jesus saves in him alone. And if you don't know him as Savior and Lord, please don't leave in that condition tonight. And I'd like to just ask in this last moment, if you would like to have your sin forgiven and know that when the rapture comes, you'll be taken. And when you die, your eternity is in heaven. If you want to know that you know, then you must do it the way that God has said to do it. And listen, you must also accept God's definitions of right and wrong. You cannot create your own moral code. You have to come into full agreement with what God has presented in Scripture as to that which is right concerning marriage, concerning sexuality, concerning all the things that the Bible clearly states. God wants you in full agreement with him. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sin, that, that word confess means to see of or speak of as the same, to be in agreement you want to have your sin forgiven, you must be in agreement with God about what sin is. And when you come into that agreement, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I just wanted to make sure you understood what we're talking about here tonight. So if you want to agree with God that you're a sinner in need of a savior and have God cover your sin with the blood of his own son and receive full and complete pardon for all that you've ever done and ever will do, and know that at the end of your days or at the rapture of the church, you'll be taken. I just want you to lift up your hand and say, that's me. I want that. I want to receive that here tonight. God bless you and you and you. God bless you and you and you. God bless you also. Anybody else? Just lift up your hand high where I can see it. God bless you in the back also. God bless each of you. And Father, I pray for these now and... I'm so thankful, Lord, for your word, even as you said through Jude, that sometimes you pull people out of the fire through fear. And these are fearful things we talked about tonight, Lord, but you told us in advance so we could know they're coming and therefore avoid them all. And thank you for that, which you have done here tonight. I pray for these, your children, God, whether they be a prodigal coming home or someone making a first-time commitment, would you keep them safe from the adversary? Watch over them. And Lord, cause them to tell others about that which you have done as they commit their souls to you, a faithful creator, in doing good. We give you thanks, Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, thank you.